All right, that's all the fun you're having tonight. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Actually, book of Hebrews tonight in chapter 8. We're going to continue um, pressing forward in um, uh, wonderful, wonderful chapter tonight, especially chapter 8. Um, so go ahead and find your place, Roman, uh, rather Hebrews chapter 8. Um, the Christ of a New Covenant the sermon title tonight. I, I am not a builder by profession. I have been in, um, I've, I've seen others do it a lot. I've read a lot and you can just kind of learn by experience and things of that nature. And I have always noticed though that uh, it seems like the preparatory work for building a building um, or office building a home usually takes a, an extraordinary amount of time. Sometimes as long as just finally putting the, the, the rest of the building together. Just the preparatory work takes an incredible amount of time. Uh, you have to survey. You have to uh, prepare the land. You have to uh, clear brush or trees if necessary. Then you have to uh, uh, look at the blueprints and you have to find out where uh, exactly on the piece of property um, it, you know, the building's going to be. Uh, and then it has to be an exact uh, place. You have to dig the footings. You have to uh, the the piers and and all those things have to be set. You have to uh, you know put that that top you know decking around it or whatever you call it to to prepare to build walls and stuff on it. It takes a long time. The reason why it takes a long time is because it's so important. When you start building the floors, you cannot go back and change your foundation. You only have one chance to get it right. And if I'm building a house, if there's a wall misplaced, whatever, I can I can correct some of those things. You get the building. Uh, you know, halfway constructed, and you realize that your foundation's messed up, then you, I guess you'll just have to start over. This is kind of illustrating our journey in Hebrews. Um, as, as so far as we have gone, we, we have, at least tonight, uh, well, in chapter 7, we talked about this, this Christ being compared to Melchizedek and how much more of a supreme uh, 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 priest or the role of the priest that he is uh, above uh, Melchizedek. We we, we walk through Jesus being greater than Moses. We walk through uh, uh, Jesus, um, uh, you know, just just being the supreme being uh, compared to anything else that the Jews had ever uh, had ever experienced so far, and and we're continuing our journey. And and so just so you have like a big picture, I want you to see what what uh, our author is trying to do in this letter. He, he's telling us now because, because of his greatness, because of the greatness of Christ, in chapter 8, there's a brand new covenant. There's really a brand new system of rules. It's a brand new type of ball game, so there's going to be new rules for the ball game in chapter 8. And then you get to chapter 9, and, and because now he's talking to Jews who are just completely enamored by a temple. And that's all that the Jews have ever been uh, accustomed to, is a temple. But, but wait a minute, if you've got a brand new covenant, you've got a brand new building that's going on. And so you've got a better covenant. Now, because you've got a better covenant, you've got a better sanctuary. Okay? And that's chapter 9. The reason why all of these are better is because chapter 10 is going to tell us that, that there's a better sacrifice. Right? So in other words, we're going to be moving from the person... Uh, which is Jesus, we're going to talk about why he's better, and, and we're going to talk in chapter 10 about the sacrifice that he made. Why is that sacrifice so much better? 
Therefore, if all of these things are so much better than in chapter 11, you are going to live a different way. And, and if you know anything about the structure of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is that great hall of faith chapter, you know, where we go through and, and by faith Moses, by faith, you know, Joshua, by faith Abel, you know, all of these things are going on. And, and then you get to uh, chapters 12 and 13 where you finish the book of Hebrews and he only devotes two chapters to actually living. Now, if you're kind of keeping score at home and if you kind of know the structure of this book and if you're aware of the structure of the book of Romans, you can see that these two books are very similar in their design. Now, the book of Romans is 16 chapters. For the first 11 chapters, two-thirds of the book, for the first 11 chapters, Paul is writing only about theology. Same is true for this book. For the two-thirds of the book of Hebrews thus far, we're only going to be concerned about theology. The point here to be made is this. When you get your theology right, you should only need but just a little bit of guidance to get the rest of your life right. And so that's why Paul only spent Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 on practical, the, the, the practical stuff of the theology. Same is true here. We're only going to get two chapters of practical living advice because we want to spend as much time as possible building the foundation. So tonight we are in Romans chapter 8, this Christ of the new covenant. Let's stand together. Let's honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. We're going to read the entire chapter. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, Father, I pray that we will see very clearly and very distinctly the Christ of a new covenant. And that when we see the Christ of a new covenant, Father, we will live this new covenant 
through, through, through all fiber and being that we have, Lord, and, and, and God, all of our experiences, God, we, we kind of we adjust it, Lord. We, we want to see them and live them through what it means to having this Christ of a brand new covenant. Father, this is very powerful, very powerful text. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, just, uh, uh, Lord, work through my, my feeble lips and my feeble tongue and equip me beyond my ability to communicate your word tonight. Father, may the blessings be upon the reading of your word to all of its hearers. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So we're going to look at this chapter in three distinct parts. The first part is going to be verses 1 through 7. What's the big deal about verses 1 through 7? Let me give you kind of a one-liner to, to, to illustrate, or rather to summarize its content. Verses 1 through 7 is a change in a pattern. A change in a pattern. In other words, Christ must be our priest. And if it's okay, I've got to get out of this jacket. I'm, I'm about to uh, pass out up here. Uh, it's warm. So. Uh, a change in a pattern. Christ must be our high priest. Why is that? Well, he serves as our high priest because, he's, he, because the work is sufficient and it's complete. Now, notice in the text what Christ is doing. Look at verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. So we see Christ is seated. Okay, now, now that's part of what we've got going on. That's great. Yes, that he's seated. But notice the location of where he's seated. He is now at the right hand of God. Now, I, I kind of illustrate it this way. Uh, let's imagine I'm at home and it's a beautiful Saturday and I'm doing yard work all day long. At some point in time, I would hope my wife would let me sit down to take a break. Uh, yeah, y'all can laugh. It's okay. That I would want to take a break. Now, if I'm in the middle of working, there's going to be a difference in the way that I sit down. I'm not going to go inside in the air conditioning and kick back in my recliner. Okay? Because if, if you're like me, I'm, I'm getting to the point where if I rest a little bit too much, I am no good the rest of the day. Right? But I will sit and let's, let's say eat a meal or, or, or drink some, some, some drink, you know, and, and, and get cooled off or something. So I'm just going to kind of sit and be ready, right, to get up later again, but I'm not going to get completely relaxed. Here is Jesus seated. And because of where he is seated, at the, right at the, at the, the right hand of the throne uh, of the majesty in heaven, because of the way that he's seated, his job's done. It's complete. So that's why we have a change in pattern. Christ's work as a priest is now done. Complete. Now let's read on and you'll see it kind of illustrated. He says in verse 2, A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, this is a whole different ballgame for giving a sacrifice as a high priest. Now, now follow me in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. Now, he says that, that, that there is a, a gift here. Okay? Now, the writer's expanding upon the importance of this location. He's saying that this location is, has a bearing upon this gift. Now, now, listen to these texts elsewhere in the New Testament, the first one being in John chapter 3. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There's another verse in the New Testament. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? That's Ephesians 4.9. 
So why is he able to be seated a little bit differently in verse 1? Because when he came, he brought the greatest gift that he could have ever brought with him. Now, if you're, if you're not careful, you're going to want to say, well, in answering what's that greatest gift, you would say, well, I would bring, I'll bring humanity. It would just be Jesus coming. That's not the greatest part of his gift. Greatest part of his gift was his deity. Lest we forget, Jesus was not just the Son of Man on the cross, he was still the Son of God on the cross. If he did not bring the deity that was him, his sacrifice would be no different than all of the sacrifices previously. There'd be no difference. Because there was no deity, there was no holiness per se, in the sacrifices of old. He had to bring something with him that completed the work. And because he brought his deity that he owned that was him, it satisfied the wrath of God against sin forever. That's why there's such a difference in the pattern. Now look at verse 5. Uh, Let me get back to verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. We know that what I just said is true because if he didn't bring it, he he wouldn't even need to have come. Why would he not need to have come? Because there were already priests doing the same thing that he would have been doing already. He had to bring something different. Now, verse 5. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, now uh, in Exodus 25, verse 40, it's an interesting verse. It says, and see that you make them the pattern. Now, this is kind of where the quote comes from. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Now, now this is interesting. Moses had the pattern to build. The Old Testament Jew, the priesthood. Everything that was about Judaism in the Old Testament, everything that they did, it did not originate with them. There was a pattern. It was given to them. Now, this is interesting, and this, this is kind of, you know, it's what we call a clue. If it wasn't given to them, and if it didn't originate with it, where did it come from? It came from God. What did God call it? A pattern. A pattern. Now, again, I don't know much about building. My dad and I, have, we, we've worked, we've done a few things uh, together. Maybe you've done some projects and in your backyard, this, that, and the other. When you, when you do rafters, now, I know, I know enough about building to be dangerous, okay? But I know that when you're building, when you're hand-building rafters, you, you have the first one, and if you do it just right, you can lay that two-by-four on the other ones and mark the cuts, okay? It's a pattern. Everything that you do after that is not the original. It was done as a pattern. Now follow with me. He told Moses way, way back, he says, what I'm giving to you, you see that you do it because it's just going to be a pattern. Now this is where it gets really cool. Because in Genesis chapter 3, the moment that God told the serpent, that, yeah, you're going to bruise the heel of man, but it's going to, that same heel that you're going to bruise is going to crush you. At that point, at that moment, at that moment, God already 
had Jesus' eyes set on the cross. Everything that was done in the Old Testament was just a pattern. That's why Jesus, on Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, told those two disciples everything concerning himself. From what? The law, the prophets. Jesus used nothing but the Old Testament to show these two disciples that everything that happened from Genesis all the way to Malachi was nothing but a pattern of his coming. Now do you see why Jesus is superior to everything. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, we just sang a song, and we did it twice after you got it right, standing on the promises of God. Standing, 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 on the promises of Christ my Savior. Okay. How do we know that that's better? You have to go back to verse 1. Where is Christ? Seated at the right hand of God. It's done. There is nothing better. There is no place that you could ever get in relation to God of a greater place of honor than at his right hand. There's nothing else that could be done. So therefore, that verse is correct. It is enacted on better promises. Verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If what God gave Moses, what if he told Moses, Moses, everything that you've got is the original. First of all, that would have been a bad decision. Why? Because he would have put everything in the hand of a sinful man. It wouldn't have worked. We would have botched it up. Okay? He gave us a pattern. He gave us an exact duplicate. An authentic reproduction. Virtually the same thing, but not quite. Virtually the same thing, and what did we do with it? We botched it up. We messed it up. So therefore, the writer, Luke, in verse 8 is going to quote from the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31 is where the quote comes from. Now listen to this quote because now this is a second section, verses 8 through 12. And, 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 this, and this second section is what I'm going to call the change in purpose. A change in purpose. There's a change in the pattern. Now because there's a change in the pattern, now there's going to be a change in the purpose. What's the purpose? We are now going to be His people. Rather than mediating through buildings... He's going to mediate through us. He's going to come directly to us. He's going to take out the middleman, as it were. Now listen through uh, this, this repeat of the prophet Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Uh, of course he did. He let them wander in the wilderness, right? Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my laws in their minds. He's going to change the way they think. Okay. Now, now, if you just read it at face value, which you should, okay, don't read into it, just read it for what it is. Uh, sounds like mind control, right? <laughs> well, good, right? 
He's the sovereign God we're talking about here. He can do whatever he wants. I'm going to put my laws in their minds, and I'm going to write them on their hearts. All right, now go ahead and take your highlighter, your pen, whatever you got. Underline these two phrases. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Wait a minute. I thought they already were. We're talking about Israel here. Weren't they already his people? Maybe kind of, sort of, yes. Now, I have two children, a son and a daughter. They will always be my son and my daughter. But if you have ever heard of these stories of heartbreak, tragedy of having what we call an estranged daughter, or I've got an estranged son, I've got a prodigal son, or I've got a prodigal daughter. I still have a son or daughter, but it's not like what I wanted it to be. You could kind of go as so far to say, they ain't acting like my son or daughter. That, that's, no, that's not any son or daughter of mine. We jokingly say when our kids are being, you know, or, or little children, whatever, and, and, they're, and they're being rather rambunctious or whatever, and I'll say to my wife, that's your children, that's your son, that's your daughter. I say all the time that my children got all of their sin from, from my wife. And, and I say that because it's so true. Because I still have every bit of mine. Yeah, they were his children, but they turned to worship idols. They went off as slaves in Egypt and Babylonian captivity. Every time they had a chance to do it right, they got it wrong. I mean, you go through the book of Judges. I mean, it's like the, the ultimate book of failure. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. God says, I'm going to make it, and I'm going to change it to where when I call them my people, when I say that they will be my people and I'm going to be their God, it will never be changed again. My friends, what those two phrases are teaching us is the permanency of our salvation. This is eternal security. So verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now, if you're paying close attention, and if you really read this, it sounds like he's talking to the church to a degree. And know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Now, this is the Old Testament. He's saying, I will be merciful. And I will remember their sins no more. So here's a change in purpose. We're going to be his, his people. Why this change? Well, let me restate. While there's, there's, there's salvation. Listen, this is said in the Old Testament. I, I, but, but there was salvation a different way then, right? No. Salvation has always been by faith. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament. How do we illustrate this? How many of you know the phrase, the just shall live by faith? Book of Romans, right? Wrong. It's quoted by Paul in the book of Romans, but it's originating from the book of Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. 
I could even go a step further and suggest that even my desire, if I were in the Old Testament days, my desire to observe the law was based, of, based in part upon faith. Why would I say that? What value would there have been in the law if there was no faith in the God of the law? See, even David was saved by faith. He wrote in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Just like we were talking about right here. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. And who can forget? Uh, uh, in, 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 uh, um, Lord have mercy. My mind is just going. Uh, Genesis 15. Abraham was justified. He believed in the Lord, right? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is New Testament salvation in Genesis 15. So in this quote here, verse 8 and 9 display a problem. The people were disregarding the law. They disregarded the law, uh, its intent, and its giver. In verses 10 and 12, it gives us a solution, and it's a very beautiful one. In verse 11, it's telling us that this new covenant becomes extremely responsible. This new relationship between God and his people. And then verse 12, this new covenant becomes extremely merciful. In in evangelism today, we have to sometimes share with someone from the word of God. We have to show them that they're lost. We have to show them that they are a sinner before they can ever accept Christ by faith. And it's kind of similar here because we had to be shown that we are, in fact, lost before we are saved, and now we are God's people. And then we get to verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I call this last one, this last section, a change in provisions. A change in provisions. We live by grace. Now, if you're not careful... It's a very curious verse, and and if you're not careful, it it may seem to indicate that since there is a new, we have completely no need for the old. I can assure you that Dr. Luke would have never assumed that, nor would the Holy Spirit author such an idea. Listen, when Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed, do you know what Scripture he was actually talking about? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. All Scripture is God-breathed. If it's God-breathed, if it's inspired, how could it ever be passing away? The Bible says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. Here's what he means in verse 13. In the, the Old Covenant was still governing the nation of Israel at the time that this epistle was written. The temple was standing and the priests were offering their appointed sacrifices. Devout Jews were probably looking at, at these new Jews who were who, these Christian Jews who accepted Christ and uh, they're, they're Christian. They said, you're foolish for abandoning such a, a solid religion such as what we've got. We have the priesthood. We have the sacrifices. Why are you leaving that? For a faith that was seemingly intangible. And what the unbelieving Jews did not realize was that their solid religion was about to go away. Why is that? An earth-shattering and monumental event occurred in A.D. 70. Does anybody know what happened in A.D. 70? I'll let you you say it out loud if you know what happened in A.D. 70. Temple was destroyed. 
Temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Guess what? Since AD 70, you go to Jerusalem, there's no temple. There's one part of the wall standing up. No temple. By the way, there's no priesthood either since AD 70. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It was prophesied that this would happen. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, that's Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5. It's on the screen. You take that, that prophecy and you take the truth of this text and this lets you know that God is dealing with Israel the same way he's dealing with us. By grace, through faith, because of the work of Jesus Christ. There is a big brouhaha and discussion and all that stuff and, and among Christian scholars that, that, well, God is still dealing with Israel a little bit differently. Oh, really? How so? You tell me by what way a Jew will come to the kingdom of God. By grace through faith. By the way, it's never changed. They were still coming by grace through faith. Ever since Genesis 15. So, let me give you three applications for this text. Um, Number one, my ultimate pattern for life is Christ. We talked about this great pattern, but, but what is it really? My, my pattern is Christ. That is the authentic. That is the original. Everything I do ought to copy that. Just like that he fulfilled the, the Old Testament priest sacrificial system, he was only giving Moses and Israel a pattern. Well, we need to look to the original so that we will know how to live and act. The old system of the priesthood, it worked for a season, but it, but it wasn't the perfect system. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow what? Christ. Don't just follow me to be following me. You follow me because I am following the original. That's the greatest New Testament leader after Christ saying that you still need to follow Christ. And this came from a guy who had every reason not to say something like that. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law backwards, front, side to side, up and down, back to back backwards and front he knew it when it came to judaism and the law paul was it he didn't have to say something like this but he was constrained to this allows us to say to others to do and to not to do things not based not necessarily only on our behavior but the pattern that ought to be followed this is an important This is an important application because here's what this means. It means that I am not perfect, but I know a perfect pattern. And therefore, because I know a perfect pattern, I can speak that pattern into your life. You can speak that pattern into my life. Because if we waited for our lives to be completely and wholly perfect before we could ever speak the truth to someone, we would never say anything to anybody. Christ is our pattern. Long time ago, when I preached the peacemaking for, for a church on Sunday nights here, a long time ago, one of, the, one of the strategies I talk about, when we go to someone else, we, we first have to get the log out, right? 
We need to make sure that what we, we, what we see needs to be dealt with with someone else. I want to make sure I'm dealing with it. If I'm dealing with it, then guess what? I've got something to share with someone else. Hey, brother, sister, I know you're going through a hard time. and Let me tell you something. I've been there. I, I'm there right now, and I'm working through it, and I can see some things going on in your life that seems to be the same thing. Let me, can I just share with you? Can I be of encouragement? Can I just challenge you? Can I... That's our ultimate pattern. Ultimate pattern for my life is Christ. Number, number two, my ultimate purpose for life is Christ. A key phrase in this text that makes this point is found in the latter part of verse 10 when he said, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Listen very closely. God created us for him and for his purposes. That's why we draw every breath. That's why we live every single minute to bring glory and honor to him. And I'm going to tell you something. Bringing glory and honor to God is not a, is not a hard task. It isn't hard. Because some of, the, some of the things that I would consider mundane or whatever, listen, sometimes that's just bringing glory and honor to God. Working. Working. Why? That's being productive. God created us to be productive people. I, I could go on. I, I, I could make a list, and, and I almost wanted to make a list, but it's like, no, I, I, could, I could just get stuck on here, and, and our time is getting short. But the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added. What are all of these things? It's all the normal stuff of life that we get consumed with. I, I get consumed with life sometimes, and I get consumed with the things of life. Jesus says, if you just come after me first, I can take care of all that other stuff. First of all, I'm going to filter it and make sure that, that you know, what you really get is what you really need. You know, I, I joke about me having a boat. I don't know if I really need one or not, to tell you the truth. I really don't know. I've never owned a boat, uh, per se, you know, I, I had one boat one time. It was a little small one that a guy gave to me. It was broken. I fixed it, and then I sold it for $100. It's the best boat ownership I've ever, I think I've ever had. It was a complete profit. But, but when we seek first, listen, there's no option, too, on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's no part B. So if I'm looking at everything, and I mean everything through the lenses of the kingdom. And, and listen, think about the scriptures. Think about everything that God talked about. Business. Being financially uh, wise. My marriage and intimacy. Child rearing. Even the, the, the seemingly mundane tasks of life way that I talk, the things I eat and drink. We can do all of these things for the glory of God. It means doing them the right way. It means maybe only two pieces of fried chicken when you would want three. Let me just kind of just, you know, throw this one out. I, you know, I can get a lot of a lot of rules and regulations, whatever, but, but we, we, you know, let's be careful about, you know, all the, you know, my doctor told me to, 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 I need to work on my cholesterol. 
She didn't explain exactly how, so I went out and had a three-piece fried chicken meal. I thought she meant, you know, jack it up. She didn't mean jack it up. I had to, had to go down, okay? But, you know, it is something to be, listen, gluttony is one of those seven deadly sins in Proverbs, right? So, all right. Just kind of making my point there. Warren Wearsby says, It is unfortunate that many Christians think that they are saved by grace, but then fulfill their Christian life according to the Old Testament law. They want the new covenant for salvation, but the old covenant for sanctification. The Apostle Paul had a phrase to describe this condition. It was called fallen from, fallen from grace, Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Not fallen from salvation, but fallen from the sphere of God's blessing through grace. We do not become holy people by trying to obey God's law in our own power. It is by yielding to the Holy Spirit within that we fulfill the righteousness of the law. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. And this is holy of grace. I'm telling you, grace can be a dangerous thing. But it's a very glorious thing. When we realize that the same way that we got saved is the same way that we ought to live. By grace. Paul wrote Romans chapter 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now Paul's talking about living by grace. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now he's talking about that imputed nature given to us as a sinner. He writes later to another church in Galatia, Chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in flesh by the, by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's what this means. Life by grace means that as a child of God, you cannot live in sin and be happy. But if you want to live in the law, here's what you do. You want to appease and satisfy just enough of the law to get you by. And, I, and you and I, listen, I've seen that a ton of times. You, you can be just holy enough to make it appear to everybody else that everything's right. We call these the Pharisees. They are the true hypocrites. Because of grace, I can actually finally live as a free man, not one convicted. Number three, my ultimate provisions for life come from Christ. My ultimate provisions for life come from Christ. Now think about verse 13 for a moment. Let it sink in. God allowed for a centuries-old religious system to pass away. Why is that? Because it wasn't the provision, it was not the provision necessary to secure eternal life by faith. Doesn't mean that it was a complete waste of time. It doesn't mean that everything that happened in the Old Testament was just, you know, God was just playing with us and toying with us. No, that's, that's not it at all. It was a test of time. As a matter of fact, it was a model for living by faith. Think about it. We get to Hebrews 11, 
who's the predominant audience that we're talking about that's exhibiting all these examples of faith? They're in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about faith. Yeah, let's, let's go there. Let's talk about the Old Testament Jew. You know, there used to be this saying, you probably heard it, and it's kind of a, you know, if, you know Walmart, like the Walmart stores. It used to be this saying that if Walmart doesn't have it, you probably don't need it, right? Uh, I'm not debating the inaccuracy of that or whatever, but let me say it in a more theological way related to this verse. If Christ doesn't supply it, then you definitely don't need it, and you probably shouldn't want it. My God shall supply my every need. Okay, now think about verse 13 once again. He says, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. We do not need it. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So my question there from this verse why do we want to continue to live in an Old Testament pattern thinking it's going to make us more righteous and holy? Why do we want, and now think about, and you've got to think about the context. Please do not lose me here. I don't want to lose you. Why would you continue doing sacrifices when there was only one that needed to get the job done once and for all complete, it's done, and now, verse 1, we go back, verse 1, he's seated at the right hand of God. So we finish in verse 13 right where we started in verse 1. There is no need to go back to the old because the new is here. And, the new, and because the new is here, it's completely done. And it, is, and it is and does supply every provision that I need and that I have for life. He is, we've so far, we've been in eight chapters. We just finished eight. Eight chapters where the author is desperately trying to convince them that Christ is it. And I believe that this message is as relevant, as, as much relevant now as it was then. Because, listen, Sunday night crowd, is Christ truly enough for you? I, I think some of you are afraid of Christ being enough for you because you haven't, you're not used to that kind of freedom. You would rather be bound by some laws around you and by some rules to keep you safe and hedge you in, you know, and you'll sneak out when you can and do whatever you can. But listen, that's not going to draw you any closer to Christ. God says, why don't you trust in me? And let me finish with an, an illustration. One of my early mentors in life was a missionary to the Ivory Coast. And uh, they dealt with uh, all sorts of tribes, and, and one of the dominant religions there was animism. Animism was a, a religion, a system of belief that objects, ordinary objects, I've got a bottle of water in my hand, is like an ordinary object. Uh, through the power of Satan, obviously, and through demonic forces, it would speak and talk and direct. It would have power and sway over me. It's what I served. 
It's what I would appease. When a uh, tribesman would hear the gospel and respond by faith, a long-standing practice was called the burning of the fetishes. It is where that person would go back to their home and gather up all those belongings that had power and sway over their lives. And, and they would make a ceremony out of it. And, and saying to others and saying to the people in their village and to their family, I'm trusting in Christ alone. I'm going to burn these things. You practice things for a while, no matter what you're doing, and you learn that there may be a better way. And our missionary brothers and sisters there in Ivory Coast realized that there might have been a better way to teach. Because remember, they're, they're not just trying to get them saved. They're teaching them how to live by faith. And they got to where later on they no longer burned their fetishes. Here's what they did. They told that old tribesman, you've turned to Christ by faith. What power does this have anymore? None. What is this? It's just a piece of furniture. It's, a, it's just a simple object that can be found in anyone's home. What power does this have over you? None. Why? Because I'm living by faith. Then walk away. Walk away. Why do anything to it? If it has no power, why do anything? I think it's a great illustration of how we ought to live. There's some things in your life you think they've got power and you try to distance yourself, you try to, you try to burn those fetishes, you, you, you try to do everything in your power because if, if you just, you know, you, out of sight, out of mind, whatever, but, but my question to you is, and, and now hear me too, I, I do think that for people who struggle with certain addictions and for people who go through certain issues of life, I think that's a wise course of action, okay? I really do. But I also know that every provision in my life is going to come from Christ. I believe that he is powerful enough in my life that I can just turn and walk away. Turn around and walk away from those things that have held you in captivity and bondage. To turn from those things which still captivate your mind, captivate your heart. And so I'm going to leave you with three questions and we're done. Number one, what do you allow as your pattern? What do you allow? Number two, what purposes guide you? What's your purpose for life? Our church, we've got a purpose statement. For the glory of God, First Baptist Church of Bologna exists to be a community of disciples of Christ, making disciples, beginning in our community and extending to the unengaged, unreached peoples of the world. That is why we're here. So what purpose guides you? Number three, what does it take to make you happy? If Christ's provisions are enough, then what does it really take to make you happy? Very penetrating questions from a very important text. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, God, for uh, what you have shown us in your word and the message that you have had for us today. Father, I pray that we would right now, just by faith, think about what, what you have said. Think about who you are. Let's think about who we are and compare them all. Find out what deficiencies are in our life. Father, we want to answer those questions, our pattern, our, our purpose, and our provisions. Father, who and what do we seek for all of those? 
And God, let us respond accordingly. Father, may, there, there may be a burden on someone that they just need to come to this altar and pray. They may want to pray by their seed or respond in some other way. Father, may your will be done in this invitation. In Christ's name, amen.